Catherine Raven has written an instant classic, capturing the imagination of readers everywhere. Fox and I, An Uncommon Friendship, is that rare book that asks us to question so much of what we take for granted about nature. She permits us an intimate look at the natural world as she encounters it, allowing us then to begin to understand our human selves a bit more clearly. In the words of Temple Grandin, after you read this book, you will experience animals in a new and marvelous way. Catherine joins me for a wide-ranging discussion on this edition of The Literary Life. You've published before and you've written before. So tell me a little bit of the arc of how it's been publishing this. Well, what's been really spectacular that I wasn't expecting was all the people that I'm hearing from book clubs and bookstore owners. Those are my favorite people to talk to. (laughs) And that's been really amazing people opening their doors and really sharing. That's just their ideas about the book and personal experiences. That's just so terrific. People wanting to talk and let me know how the book has influenced them. And I love talking to booksellers and I love asking them about themselves and finding out that so many of them are also writers and wanting to write. Book club people, the same. And everybody has a little bit of a different question, a little bit something different, special that they took out of the book, which I knew because, of course, I'm such a big reader. And I know that when I take something out of the book, maybe the author is somewhere dead 100 or 200 years, but he's saying, no, that's that wasn't the main point, really. But I forgot I even wrote that in there. But that's okay. <laughs> you know, I, this book took me by surprise, to be honest, because, you know, it was the first thing I've read of yours. And it was so immersive. And it took me out of my, it took me out of my normal life and brought me into a life that, you know, is admittedly thousands of miles away. You gave me an obsessive view of nature, which I don't have in my everyday life and something that I realized I was missing. It almost seemed like you needed to write this book, that this was a necessary book for you to write. So talk a little bit about about what journey brought you to the writing of this book. I think that the experience with the fox was really a tremendous turning point for me. It it wasn't just about the fact that I wasn't really sure where I was heading in terms of living in a city or a town or what I want to do with my life. And then realizing that that was the whole point to do something and not to be something. But the important thing was a relationship. Feeling that an individual really felt that way about me, a a level of trust, the emotions that were involved really shocked me. 
I, I hadn't ever had anything like that before really. And trust is something really amazing when you think about it. I know people who are in relationships with people that they're married to or thinking of marrying, even that's an issue there, but to have an individual really trust you is something that I had never thought about before. And I really, I had just always been living kind of in my own little world, not feeling like there was human beings around that I was really relating to or that were relating to me in any way. And the fox really trusted me a lot with his life. And from the beginning, when he got so close to me that I could have just reached out and strangled him. But then when he brought his kits over, the trust was really outrageous. He, he believed that I was a good and honorable person, that he actually had that feeling about me. That's really amazing that he let me know that he knows that I'm a good and honorable person. I don't, uh, and I hadn't felt that way, I guess, from anybody that mattered. And then there's joy. And I thought a lot about that because love isn't a word that's, that I'm comfortable with, not because it's a powerful word, but because it's a zero of a word. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just this fuzzy thing that I might say when I get my new running sneakers, because I like to run and I say, I love these new Sauconies. And then it's the same word that you use for a person. But when you combine joy and trust, I realized what in the world am I talking about joy and trust? That's love, isn't it? And who else has given me this kind of joy? Think about people that you've been with that have given you this kind of joy and you're not feeling it. Of course, since the book, I have been feeling a lot of joy from being around people. That's true. I mean, my publisher is really, really wonderful. And I consider her a friend now and she was visiting here. So I do see joy from other people, but I didn't before. And so spending time with him so much time, years, and getting so much joy. And when I combine the fact that this is an individual that gives me joy and that trusts me, that's love. There isn't really any better definition that I have of love. And I can see it. So love isn't a fuzzy word anymore. I, can, I have images in my mind of trust. And I think about the moonlit night when he brought those kits by. And I can think about joy with us walking together uh, in the moonlight up to his den. There's lots of times when I experience joy with the fox, but I have those times are actually in my mind. So they exist. So love isn't something fuzzy anymore. You speak a bit about the difficult upbringing that you had in, you know, a semi-abusive home life. Uh, I think, you know, there was something startling that your father had said to you at one point, which really stuck with me and still does. But, but then you went on to have a career uh, as a biologist and as a, as a scientist. And so was it, did, and, and you know, you weren't expecting Fox, right? I mean, no, everything about, everything about your training, everything about your training implied that there would never be a fox in your right. life, right? That's right. Because you were trained not to anthropomorphize 
foxes or animals in any real sense. Yes. So think about that a little bit and how that changed you and altered you and, and opened you up to this kind of love that you talk about. The important thing I think that changed was my view of the importance of science. So I was living a life that was really based a lot on rational reasoning and thinking. And that really cuts a lot of important events out of your life that aren't based on, on thinking. If you think about whether you should spend emotion and time with a creature that's very short-lived, you really shouldn't expect a fox to live more than four years in the wild. Most of the animals that you'll encounter outdoors, your house, the little tiny robin that keeps coming by so close to your front door and she has a little tumor in the front, so she's easy to recognize from all the other ones. Are you gonna invest time and emotion in her? She's gonna be gone migrating do they migrate in Florida? Maybe not, but they migrate here. And even if they don't migrate in Florida, the tumor is not really a good sign. Uh, so you're thinking this isn't rational and it makes no sense. But then if you stop thinking about it and just feel, it starts to make sense. It feels really right. And I, what's important about the relationship the fox was he brought me beyond the point of changing my view of anthropomorphism, but into the idea of reverse anthropomorphism, which is really what I'm spending a lot of time thinking about now. I knew from Fox that the idea that animals have certain personalities and humans have certain personalities and, we, and the traits that are human traits are only for humans, that we have some traits that are just human and animals can't have those. I understand now that we're wrong about that, that we really don't understand which traits belong just to humans and that animals do have these amazing personalities. But I'm also realizing that people are a lot more like the other animals than we thought, that we, our culture has pulled us so far away from our human nature, our animal nature. And the book, of course, made me think back to things like the, the fawn at uh, Panther Creek when we uh, decided it needed to die because that was the paradigm. And then, and some, I knew something was wrong. I knew that that hadn't been the way people had acted for thousands of years. It's, it seems like it's human instinct to see something suffering and looking at you and then you would help it. But our culture says no, cause it's natural and you just let it die. I'm realizing that our culture is masking a lot of what our human nature is. Our human nature has been building up for hundreds of thousands of years, ever since the beginning of Homo sapiens as a species. We have a certain human nature and that nature should be evolutionarily stable and cultures are really transient. I mean, we see cultures just changing so much in, in our lifetimes and we can read about cultures that are only a couple thousand years old that don't exist anymore. So culture is really transient and human nature isn't. So I think it's really important for me going forward. And I hope people that read the book, they won't just open up to understand that animals are more like us, but that we are more like animals, that we need to come together in this way. We can. So I've been solving a lot of problems that way when I realized that something isn't making sense logically 
I forget about thinking logically and I just try to, and to feel and I get in touch with what my nature is telling me. And that's where I get the right answer. You just expressed what I w- felt when I was reading it, which was watching some of that culture be shed and saying, telling myself, wow, you know, I'm reading about vols. I didn't know what a vol was, really. <laughs> you know, or I'm going into the fox's den. God, I had no idea that a fox could be a scavenger in a sense or have an aesthetic sense and put together a room like that. Do you know what I mean? So it, it does do that. And I think I heard you say one where someplace that we all need to make ourselves, we have to let ourselves be a little more wild. in our Yes. Don't, don't you think, I mean. In touch with our nature, in touch with our human nature. That's, that's I think my definition of natural is wild my definition of nature is that it's a community, of course, but wild and natural are the same thing. People get confused with that word natural, but I think that's what it means. Shed these artificial constructs that are cultural and get back in touch with our really wild side. You've given us a prescription. It's a prescription on how to deal with what is basically a bit unnatural for us to be putting these layers of civilization and culture on top of what we do with all of its inhibition, with everything else that it brings with it. It's a very, very, it was a really, it kind of, you you know, it was one of those kind of tectonic shifts in my own view toward nature after I read Fox and I. Have other people had that, that experience? I think that other people are finding that they are, needing to be more wild. Yes, it's a really, uh, I, I ran into some folks at a bookstore in Bozeman when I was signing books and a woman had bought the book for a husband and she was reading it to him and she said they were trying to decide. They'd only just been vacationing in Montana for like 20 years or something and then living somewhere in a big city and they were trying to decide what to do. And then starting this book, getting into the book, it made them realize that that was the answer. They needed to get in touch with their actual true human instinct, their wild side. And Thoreau was trying to do that, right? Leave the, leave the world and go to Walden. People like Barry Lopez talking about, you know, giving us a, a reintroduction of what the natural world is like. I always like Greta Ehrlich's Solace of Open Spaces which was something that I always liked a lot. But the the one thing that I find in yours that I don't find in very many other writers about nature is a kind of fluid, your language was so fluid and your thought process was so fluid that I found myself thinking about vols one minute and then getting into the, what was it? Is it the geological heritage of the boulder near your house, you know? Mm -hmm. So I found myself going all over the place. And by doing that, it stripped away more and more layers of of self-consciousness in my own dealing with nature. It's really inspiring, I think, to realize that there are so many beautiful, amazing things that aren't from humans, because sometimes, you know, we look at art and architecture and music, 
but that's a different kind of inspiration. It's inspiration, but it keeps reminding you that we did that, that it's, it's, it's dependent on us. But when you go out and see a different kind, and it's not any better, it's, but it's different in the sense that when you see the mountains and the lakes and all this space that has nothing to do with humans, and it makes you feel the same way as looking at a beautiful piece of art or listening to classical music, you realize that humans aren't really the only thing in the world. We're not, and it makes, it just makes me feel great because I know the planet's gonna go on without us. There's going to be, you know, when we're gone, there won't be music, our kind of music anymore. There, there won't be violinists and there won't be sculptures. And that's sad, but there still will be an equivalent of that. The world is the world, the earth will be here without us. It was here before us, it will be here without us. And I find that really reassuring. You know, and it's interesting too, because I think I read somewhere, you know, distinguishing your book from other books in which people, after reading it, it's hard not to be concerned with what's happening with our natural world, right? With, you know, everything that we could detail in terms of everything that we're seeing with the fires out West and the droughts and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, people respond to your book, not as a treatise, not as a call to arms. And what, what you're asking for is a kind of understanding of nature. Yeah, it's common sense. It's not a treatise or a call to arms. I think that when people start to really love and feel comfortable in nature and realize it's their community, they're part of it, this is their community. That understanding changes a lot of things. It changes so many things about how you act day to day and what you're comfortable with and what you're willing to accept. And you start to feel like maybe there are too many people in the world. You start to start looking outward away from humans, just a little bit less human-centric world will, I think, make a world better for all of us. But look at the animals love being with other species. And for some weird reason, we haven't. It's, it just, uh, it doesn't seem healthy and it doesn't seem like it made makes sense. And I think it is cultural because I, we haven't been at the top of the totem pole long enough. So we couldn't have survived if we were just thinking about ourselves, because humans have only just recently been on the top of the totem pole. We've had to follow other animals to find our migration, even the migration routes, even the roads in Montana, they are following old human trails from the First Nations and the First Nations people followed animal trails. So where our roads are, those are animal trails. We didn't used to think that everything was about us. And then suddenly we did. And hopefully we will start uh, backing up a little bit because we're missing so much of, uh, of our lives, I think. So here, you know, one of the things that was so interesting to me, and I, I think it's in the, in the prologue a little bit, is where you talk about you, you, you created this amazing bond with Fox but you knew that it was temporal, right? Because fox, how long does a fox actually live in Montana? Four years in the wild is really is really wonderful. I mean, some might live longer than that, but it's pretty unusual. So you would expect four for an average. So you know, so you knew going into it that the relationship 
would not be the longest of relationships yes. that you've had, but it didn't matter because you began to see time differently, right? So talk about that a little bit, if you could. You know, I try to think about, I try to think about this logically about time and why it doesn't really matter to me the same way it matters to other people. Talking to so many people about animals and podcasts and bookstores and clubs, people still want to choose their pets based on longevity. And I, I was thinking about this logically and it wasn't making any sense to me. And then I reverted to my wild thinking, which is the way I'm most comfortable with. And I realized that I can see love because I can see the trust and the joy. So I know that love exists. And then I try to see time and I realize I can't see it. Because where I live all at once on my mind at the same time is a three billion year old boulder that I'm sitting on next to a 350 million year old block with fossils on it and the river right in front of my house, which is the path of the last glacier. So the, the Yellowstone River here in the Paradise Valley, it is uh, following the, the most recent glacier that melted. And that's the last of the last glacier too. So heading north from uh, Yellowstone Park um, where, where the river is now, and maybe 17,000 years ago, all these different times all merging into, I mean, how can you see that? Three and a half billion, 300 million, 20,000. What difference does 40 days or four days or four years make? It's just completely unfocusable. It's just not real. Relationships are real. Love is real. Time just isn't really a real thing for me. It is absolutely a cultural uh, artifact, isn't it? I mean, it just, right. when you think about all the time here that the, the Yellowstone um, volcano from, you know, 600,000 years ago, I mean, everything is just all Time is just too, too fluid and we can't, and I can't actually see it. I can't, I don't have no image in my mind of time that makes any sense to me when I'm talking about a human life, anything that's practical to us in our lifetimes. It's easier to live without worrying about that. So you don't worry about time, but it's fair to say that what's important are the relationships that you develop and no matter how long they are, but you try to make them as intense and wild as possible so that they can live within you for however long we're here. You know what the fox and the hawk and the magpies and the, the animals that I live with here know, and I learned it from them, every single person that you love is going to die too soon. That's a fact. Everyone you love dies too soon. And everyone that hates you has already lived too long. And that's, that's the truth of time. <laughs> when people reach a problem or there's a personal, or someone is going through a personal crisis, I think somewhere you say, what's good to ask yourself is, what is your optimum habit and your <laughs> optimum habitat, right? Talk yeah. about that a little bit. I love that. 
You know, that's just so crazy that I didn't know. I have a bachelor's degree in botany and part of my job at Voyagers National Park, which I loved and you should go to once we go kayaking in Everglades, we can go. <laughs> Voyagers is just spectacular. I was uh, collecting specimens for the herbarium there. And every single plant specimen that is collected that goes into an herbarium has to be labeled by a botanist as to its habit and its habitat. And so it should have just been, but I was brought up through my scientific training to think of humans way over here and all other living things over here. And I forgot that, I mean, I didn't forget, I had just had never realized where living things, when we label ourselves, there needs to be a habit and a habitat. And when we talk about animals and plants, we identify their optimum because oftentimes, especially in subalpine places, for example, a lot of people might foolishly think that plants are where they want to be, but they're not. Well, they don't have legs, they can't get up and move. And oftentimes plants and animals are not in their optimum place, but that's what they're, that's where they want to be. But sometimes it's too crowded in their optimum place. And so they're not there. Sometimes plants are in subalpine zones because the better places are taken up by plants that they can't compete with very well. Your habit is the things that, just like it sounds, the things that you like to do some plants like to grow in sheets and some plants like to grow solitary and some like to grow on slopes and some like to grow where it's flat and some like a particular aspect, like an east face and some like a west face. So those are all parts of the habit. And some plants twin, so they like to do that. You've, you've seen like morning glories and some tend to split on the bottom. So some pine trees, you can recognize them even when they've been dead for hundreds of years, you can tell by the skeleton left of the tree if it, if it split on the bottom or did it split a whole bunch at the leader? Because subalpine firs tend to split at the leader and uh, five needle pines, limbers tend to split at the bottom into two. So those are habits of the way they, they grow, but they don't all do that. It's, it's a habit, it's not a diagnostic trait of a of those trees, but they're their habits. And our habits are those things that we like to do, whether it's that you like to kayak or whether you like to hunt, or whether you like to have your mornings in bed reading or whether you read on those electronic things, you need to figure out what whether you are a bather or whether you're a shower person. And then uh, these are all of your habits and you should figure out which ones are optimal for you and, and go towards them and make sure that you're getting those optimum habits. Your habitat, that's really important. People need to decide where they wanna live. I'm seeing a lot of people moving because of COVID. I don't think it's a very good thing. It seems more like a knee-jerk reaction. It's nice that they have time and money to move but I'm not sure they're really thinking about where they want to go. I think a lot of them are just sort of escaping from where they are. Leaving a place, as I, as I learned very much from the fox, I could always tell when he went somewhere. When you move from point A to point B, either you're doing it because you're leaving point A or you're doing it because you want to be in point B. Those are two different things. 
And sometimes it's a little bit of both, but when you seek out your optimum habitat, you shouldn't just be escaping somewhere. You should be really thinking about where you want to go. So people are getting, they're doing a little bit better. I mean, because of COVID they're moving, at least they're realizing that they have some options, but before just moving, <laughs> they should really think about what is their optimum habitat? You know, what's the best place for them to be by the water, by a lake, by an ocean, heat, snow, mountains, and figure out where they wanna live and where maybe it's just okay for them to vacation. Maybe they need to be in a city most of the time because they really need the buildings and the products that they get from being in a city. And so then the lakes and the ocean will just be their, their vacation time, their off time, or it'll be reverse of that. And they'll need cities for some of the time, but mostly uh, somewhere else. And people might change their optimum habitat as they get older. Animals do. Older, sicker animals move towards water. That's a fact. We, we know that for sure. When we're looking for carcasses, that's where we go to find them. Well, I grew up on Miami Beach, and that's where older, sicker people had always moved when I was growing up, right? <laughs> right by the ocean. Right by the ocean. Do, do you feel like you have found, are you in your optimum space right yes. now? Do you think? Yeah, I like being apart from people. I think I've been to town. Um, maybe, oh, I had, I had a my publisher, Cindy Spiegel, visited in July. So after she left, I only made one trip to town. This month, I'll go once to the city, Livingston, it's not a big city, to do a reading. And then I will um, leave twice more, but that's because I'm teaching in Yellowstone Park. So I'll leave twice to do two different weeks of teaching in Yellowstone Park. But other than that, I'm pretty comfortable not having a lot of uh, stimulation from buildings and houses and cars and things like that. I'm pretty good living um, where it's somewhat isolated. And we should talk a little bit about books. I mean, you're such a, you know, your book is about books as well as it's about other things. What are you reading now? And what would you recommend? Is there anything that well, fancy? I just finished the most. Um, do you sell used books also? We do. Well, we, we do online. We don't in the store, but so, everybody listening has access to used books too. You might be, I don't know whether um, this will be uh, a used book or not. Probably it's called um, The Mountain Lion and it, it was re-released. Is it by uh, Jean Stafford? No. Yes. <laughs> it is by Jean Stafford? It is by Jean oh. Stafford. Do you have a good version of it? There is, I, it has been re-released. I mean, I only just have a beat up old paperback one and I would love to get, uh, if you have copies of hardback, I'm going to get on your site and buy one. Well, I don't think I have a hardcover, but I will find you ours. She, she is so amazing. terrific. Oh yeah. my God. Gosh. Do you know her story? Do you know her backstory? No, no, no. Okay, and so, I heard it was semi-autobiographical, but I well, it is. Jean Stafford grew up, believe it or not, in Boulder, Colorado, actually, which is where she grew up. And then she she fell in love with the poet Robert Lowell. Oh, um, and she and Robert Lowell were a real item for a long, long time. And then she not only wrote The Mountain Lion, but then she wrote a whole series of stories and all of that. But 
she probably got the brunt of Lowell's, um, you know, manic depressive personality, you know, is because she went West after she was in Boulder. I think she probably went to an Ivy League college. I'm not really sure where they met, but Lowell was at Harvard and they were a real couple in the forties. And they were part of that, part of that literary group of like Lowell and John Berryman and Eileen Simpson and that whole group. Wow. I didn't realize, I didn't didn't know. And I've wanted to know so much about her because (laughs) that book is the best explanation of what it's like to be in a family group, but not be in that family group at all. Right. That where there's, there's just, you can't quite put your finger on it. There's not this obvious verbal abuse, but there is this abuse in that she's just massively ignored and she, she's just it just I can the ending oh my god I mean the, the book is just so insightful relationships of oh, uh, you know you should that'd be really cool I mean you might want to you should write an essay about it or something for the, I'm just, for it's the next year's like the is it the 25th anniversary of its yeah. re-release and I was so impressed that it was um re-released and of course the novel i'm working on has a, a mountain lion not at the center point it's well that was my next question so, so the next book is a novel that you're working on i'm working on a novel i, I do want to write an essay about stafford's book i loved that book so oh, i would much. love ending even that. made it even and there's nothing like it um yeah. and the other thing that i really loved about her book is it's so hard for me to find books that i feel of course i like to feel books read books that bring me to another place, but it was really nice to be in a place that I knew the plants and the animals. It just doesn't take place in Montana, but the plants and the animals, the expressions, the horses, the cattle, the hunt, the lion, and, uh, and the reasons why people hunt. I mean, it was just the protagonist is so anti-hunting and I just, I love how much she loved that lion and then the two other people that wanted to kill it, believing that, you know, wanting to own it and, you know, all of these, right. uh, it, it was just. just oh, you need to, you need to write an essay about it because, you know, in the 40 years that I've been selling books, that book keeps being rediscovered. And I think, <laughs> really? I think it needs to be rediscovered again. And you could help do that. In a I will, book. I will write that essay then because I just, I can't believe the, I don't want that book to go out of print. <laughs> no, it's a really, you just made me realize I'm going to, I read it 35, I can barely remember it, but I'm going to have to read it over again, I think. And, you know, it could be, could be an essay that Lit Hub publishes. We could find, you know, I'm sure the Times book review might even want to publish it, which yeah, would be well, very, very cool. Go, uh, and we just can't let it disappear. It's, it was just a, it was just odd that I picked it up at a used bookstore because it had a mountain lion on the cover and it's called The Mountain Lion. Would you read a little something of your book? Oh, sure, I will. This is from Fox and I. I was a park ranger before I earned my doctorate in biology. In fact, I was pressing a Stetson on my head and cinching up that iconic pinecone embossed belt before I finished my bachelor's degree. I'd studied botany and zoology in college. In Washington's Mount Rainier National Park, I patrolled the backcountry. My trail circuit included a region known as Three Lakes, where I stayed in a tiny cabin that smelled like wood and wax. 
a few feet shorter than my blue roofed cottage, the Three Lakes patrol cabin and its outhouse perched on a knoll above First Lake, the largest of the Three Lakes. Giant shaggy barked evergreens surrounded and almost completely shaded the lake. I never called it First Lake. I treated all three lakes as a single body of water temporarily separated by a transient meadow and called it all three lakes, no matter which shore I stood on. Not many hikers trudged the six miles uphill to three lakes from the nearest road. Even fewer came by way of Pacific Crest Trail, a long journey that required camping overnight. Every morning, I rose from a sleeping deck that ran flush with the cabin's window and scratched myself into a uniform, one badge on the shirt and another on the jacket. Wearing a 357 and a shoulder holster, I hiked down to the lake with coffee in one hand and a government-issued logbook in the other. Across my green cloth logbook, in fat black cursive, I had written a quote from Ishmael, the narrator of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Meditation and water are wedded forever. For Ishmael, an impecunious sailor hustling jobs in Manhattan in the 1800s, meditation meant exactly what it meant to me at the Three Lakes cabin in the 20th century, pondering. If it had any other meaning, scholastic, formal, or religious, I wasn't any more aware of it than Ishmael would have been. Overall, our lot and luck didn't differ by much. We'd both found ways to keep wild animals and wild water nearby. Melville could have dropped Ishmael along the Shriner Peak Trail and let him join me on the eight mile hike up the exposed ridge to the fire lookout. After surveying wildlife and hammering PVC pipes into snowbanks, we would haul jerry cans filled with meltwater back to the fire tower. In the evening, we would stand on the tower's railed balcony to admire our priceless view of Mount Rainier. And never mind the thousand miles or the 150 years that separated us, the same thought would cross our minds. An eight mile hike, no better view in the Northwest, asked less of a person. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Kathy, thank you so much. Catherine Raven, the book is Fox and I, and I want to thank you so much for being on The Literary Life this afternoon. Thank you for selling books for so many decades. It's uh, You're an amazing person, and I'm so honored to have you speak to me. So, so honored, and uh, looking forward to talking to you more about Gene Stafford. Yes, no, and, and like the mountain lion, I think Fox and I will be read for decades and decades and decades to come. <laughs>